Well, there are certain events that require an immense amount of preparation. Uh, we just had the Super Bowl in Los Angeles last week. Uh, Pastor David's beloved Rams took home the, uh, the Lombardi Trophy. And that game lasted about four hours, and then it was over. Uh, but the cities make the bids to host those Super Bowls years in advance. And in order to make a bid, they have to put together these documents that have about 600 pages in them. Uh, and they submit those to the Shield, right? They submit those to the NFL, and then they let them know if they have won it. And then once they find out, hey, we've got the Super Bowl, planning begins immediately. So what we saw last Sunday, they started planning that four years ago, right? So there's all this preparation for this four-hour event. Another example would be presidential inaugurations. Uh, the inauguration is much more than the ceremony you see on television. There are multiple parties and dinners in the week uh, that the inauguration is happening, and there's usually a really big concert. There is the inauguration parade. There is the inaugural ball. There's a military security uh, everywhere, police security everywhere. Months and months of planning uh, goes into it. And they cost big money. It is estimated that in 20, uh, that after the 2016 election, President Trump's inauguration cost uh, somewhere between 175 to 200 million dollars. How do you feel about that as a tax uh, taxpayer? Is neither here nor there this morning. All right, <laughs> we won't talk about that. But uh, certainly, a lot of preparation for this one event. Or if we just want to talk about our church, how about the Christmas lights outreach? Uh, the planning for that began in February of 2021 to be able to have that Christmas lights outreach last year. And of course we had it and it was awesome. We had over 500 cars come through. We were proud of that. And the team uh, is going to work really hard this year. And in fact, when I say they're going to work, they're already working. So our Christmas lights outreach teams already had two meetings. Okay. It's not even March yet. They've already met twice uh, talking about what worked, what didn't work, what would we want to add for next year. So um, there's a lot of preparation for that event. Big events require big preparation. Well, there is no bigger event than the return of Jesus. It will be a global event. It will be an event that is seen by every eye. It will be the most elevated and most majestic event to occur in world history. And so how do we prepare for that? We saw last week in Luke 17 that this is an event that will be longed for by the church, that all the nations will see it. It will be the culmination of the saving work of Christ. Uh, he was born that he would die, and he died that he might rise again, and he rose again to ascend on high, and he ascended on high so that he could return again one day. It will be an unexpected event. It will be an event that exposes the condition of every human heart. It will be an event that creates a permanent divide between believer and unbeliever. So how do we get ready for it? Well, biblically, there are a few answers to that question, and we won't go into all the answers this morning. We'll focus on just one of them. Because this text gives us one of the major answers. How do we get ready for the return of Christ? Well, in this parable, Jesus teaches us that we prepare for his return by praying persistently. And so I'm going to read for us from Luke 18, starting in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Unlike most of Jesus' parables, we don't have to wait to the end to get to the main point of this illustration. Luke steps in and he tells us the point right off the bat. We see it in verse 1. Luke says he told them a parable. A parable is a fictitious story that Jesus uh, often would utilize in order to communicate every uh, heavenly truth. So he, he would take kind of everyday scenarios, everyday situations that the culture around him would have been familiar with, and he would communicate eternal heavenly truth through those stories. And he tells them here, uh, Luke says that it, it, this parable is about them praying, that they should always pray and that they should not lose heart. So Luke's summation of the parable uh, gives us our first point this morning. Number one, there is a temptation for the church to lose heart as they wait on the return of Christ. Right? Jesus said last week that the church will long to see the days of the Son of Man, and they will not see it. So there's going to be this time where we are just asking for Jesus to return. We're longing for him to return. We want him to return, but the return isn't happening yet. We're longing for it, but it hasn't come yet. And there is a temptation for the church to lose heart as they wait. Why else would Jesus tell them a parable about not losing heart? We can presume there is a danger that they could. There's a danger that we could. Because, first of all, the Lord indeed will tarry. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9 The Bible says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Surely there are people who will mock the fact that Jesus has not returned yet, who will say, see, he he can't fulfill his promises. In the same way he was mocked when he was on the cross, they'll mock him now. Well, if he could return, then he would return. Why would he not return yet? And so they'll mock him, but what they're mocking him for is actually his own patience toward them. That's what Peter is telling us. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise. The Lord is perfectly working on his timetable down to a fraction of the second. He is not off at all. He is working according to his wisdom, according to his timetable. And on his timetable, he is being patient because he wants to draw his people to himself. People like Chloe, people like Beckett this morning. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So they may mock the Lord right now, but there's going to come a time where patience will be over and he will return. And it will be sudden and it will be cataclysmic. But until that day comes, as the church waits on her Lord, it is not an easy road. 
The church walks a road of suffering. The church walks a road of persecution. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, you can expect that. In Matthew 24, verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So it's our identity in Christ that will cause the nations to hate us. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So in the period in between the ascension of Christ into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and his return at his second coming, the church will suffer. And we see that in our Bibles. If you go to Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, you see Stephen, uh, one of the first deacons in the church, doesn't have the title officially, but certainly seems to uh, be in a role that was a prototype for uh, deacons as we know them. So one of the first men set aside by the church to serve the church so the pastors could attend to preaching the word and could attend to prayer. And Stephen is martyred for his faith in Christ. He is stoned to death, an execution seemingly organized by the Apostle Paul because they lay their their coats, their tunics at at Paul's feet as they're killing Stephen. This is before Paul came to know Christ himself when he was still persecuting the church. And so we see just six chapters after Jesus ascends into heaven, people dying for the name of Christ. You see it in history. You think about a man like John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was responsible for being the first one to translate the Bible into English. He also preached in Middle English so that the common people could understand the Scriptures. And he came under a heavy scrutiny from the Catholic Church for this. But when he stood against the idea of the Pope having the authority to rule over his preaching, and he stood against the idea of the Pope having authority over the Church of Christ then the Catholic Church really turned up the heat on him. Two different popes summoned Wycliffe to Rome. The Catholic Church in England was always uh, bearing down upon him. They sought to make his life miserable. Now, Wycliffe wasn't martyred the way that Stephen was. His life of persecution ended when he had a stroke and he died. But to make a point, 44 years after his death, the Catholic Church dug up his body and burned it. Because they wanted everybody to know that Wycliffe should not be trusted and his teachings should not be trusted. We see it currently. In 2021, Open Doors International said Christian persecution was on the rise worldwide. Last year, there were more Christians killed, more churches attacked or shut down, more Christians were arrested without trial, and more Christians were kidnapped than the year before. Over 360 million Christians experienced persecution last year. Nearly 6,000 were killed for their faith. You don't hear about that on the news. It's not talked about. It doesn't make headlines, but it's happening. So when you combine waiting on the Lord with the persecution that comes while waiting on the Lord, the temptation to lose heart is pressing. 
The Greek word for lose heart is ekakeo, which is a really fun word to say. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a fun one. Not all Greek words are fun to say, but that one's fun to say. And, and what it means is to be utterly spiritless. It, it means that you are wearied. It means that you are absolutely exhausted. Jesus does not want you to be utterly spiritless. Jesus, as you wait on him, does not want you to be exhausted, and he doesn't want you to be weary. Do you know that about Jesus? Because I think our circumstances sometimes can fool us into thinking that Jesus doesn't want what's best for us, but that's a lie from Satan. He does want what is best for us. Sometimes we don't always know what's best for us, and sometimes we don't always agree with Jesus on what's best for us, but he knows what's best for us, and he always wants what is best for us. And he does not want you to lose heart. And the way that is prevented is through persistent prayer. And that is why he tells us this story, to convince us. To convince us that the preventative spiritual maintenance we must attend to until the Lord returns is prayer. Right? If you've got a car that you like, you've got to change the oil. You've got to make sure there's all the right amount of fluids under the hood. If you don't know how to do those things like me, you take it to somebody uh, that does know how to do all of those things. Right? You've got to do that preventative maintenance in order to keep the car running, to keep it on the road, so you can keep putting those miles on it and and not have the thing drop out on you. And it's the same way with our hearts. There's preventative spiritual maintenance we must do as we wait on the Lord. And prayer is that maintenance. So here's the story that Jesus tells. It takes place in a fictitious city. We get two characters in that city. There's a judge and there is a widow. The judge is not exactly a portrait of justice, okay? Jesus describes this guy as not fearing God and not respecting man. So he is irreverent on one hand and he's unloving on the other, right? Jesus might uh, might as well have just called him a man who has no regard for God on any level. He could have just said that about him. Because think about the fact that The whole of God's law can be summed up in the fact that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, or inside the church, we are to love one another as Christ loved us. This guy doesn't care about the entirety of God's law. He doesn't care about loving the Lord. He doesn't care about loving his neighbor. So he has no respect for God, no respect for the law of God, the word of God. He doesn't give a rip. He's an immoral man. Which is unfortunate because he's in a position where morality is key. When you walk into a courtroom, you are hoping that the man or the woman who sits on that bench is moral. That they will uphold the law they are sworn into. This guy's job is to administer justice, but he's an unjust man. So what does he care about? If he doesn't care about God, if he doesn't care about his neighbors, what is his priority? Well, there's only one person left, and that's him. He cares about himself. He's a selfish person. He cares about his own skin. He cares about his own agenda. Then we have this widow. She's in court. She's advocating for herself. And what that tells us is she's in a really tough spot. Usually what would happen is uh, a widow, if their husband died and that husband's brother was not married, then the brother of the husband would then marry her. Or if that wasn't possible and she had already had children, particularly if she had had sons, the sons would take care of her. They would make sure that she's not alone in this world. 
But the fact that there is no one to advocate for her in court, and listen, it was a very patriarchal society, so the fact that there's no man to be there to advocate for her in court tells us that she truly is on her own. There, there is no brother that stepped up. There is no son there. She is on her own in this world. And she seems to have some sort of adversary who is trying to bring her to even further ruin. Maybe she has been defrauded. Maybe somebody has gotten their hands into what little money she has and is draining her resources. The Pharisees, by the way, were famous for that. They would love to get their hands into the estate of a widow, and then they would just suck it dry. They would suck all the money into the synagogue and really didn't care what happened to the widows themselves. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe somebody's threatening to sue her and take what little she has. We don't know. All we know is she is there, she is alone, and she is petitioning this unjust man for justice. The Greek word for justice literally means legal protection. She is there begging this man, protect me with the law from my adversary, from this person who is trying to take my already difficult life and make it impossible. Protect me. She feels hopeless as you read it you go man what hope does she have there's nobody there to advocate for her we know this guy sitting on the bench he's a bum can't can't trust this guy he's got no respect for man he's got no shame about only looking out for himself he's just going to dismiss her and send her out into the world to die no advocate turning her over to a life of destitution But then the story takes an unexpected turn. In verses 4 and 5, it says, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So he acquiesces. He, He gives in. He hears the woman's case. He gives her the legal protection, the justice she has been seeking. And he doesn't do it because he's a righteous man. He doesn't do it because the compassion uh, that was dormant in him rose up and it brimmed over. That's not what happened. He does it because he wants her to go away. He just wants her out of the courtroom. He's, He's tired of listening to the case. It's his own selfish desires that lead him to hear the woman's cause. But the bottom line is not the fact that it's a selfish man on the bench. The bottom line is that her persistence won. That's what's key to the parable. Her continual coming won the day. Her persistence won the day. And so as we get into verse 6, Jesus gives us application for the story. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? And so that's the question Jesus is posing here. It's a a question that is meant to cause us to play a game of comparison. He wants his listeners to compare and contrast the judge in the story, the unjust judge, with the character of the righteous judge of all the earth, God in heaven, God Almighty. The unjust judge has no fear of God. He has no respect for man. But listen to what the Bible tells us about the judge who sits in the heavens this morning. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. 
A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. The unjust judge in Luke 18, he is unfaithful to everybody except numero uno, right? He he is unfaithful to everybody except himself. But God's character is marked by his faithfulness. The unjust judge is corrupt. What he does in that courtroom is always about what is best for his own agenda. But God is without sin. God is upright. And God does indeed work according to his own agenda. But because he's holy, the agenda he's working on is a holy one. Meaning that everything he is doing is holy and comes from a place of righteousness. The unjust judge is an imperfect man who abuses his position of power. But God is a perfect rock and every single thing he does is just. So if this imperfect man, this corrupt man, this unfaithful man, this selfish man will take the persistent, desperate cries of a widow into account, even if it's for the wrong reasons, then will not God listen to His people persistently cry out to Him in desperation? If the widow comes to the court and persistently says, you're my only hope, you have to help me, and the unjust judge listens, then we can be sure that as God's children enter into his throne room by the blood of Christ, and they persistently say, Lord, you are my only hope, that he will act on their behalf. And so our second point this morning. If the unjust judge listens to the helpless, then we can be certain that the just judge of all the earth will do the same. I think that Jesus' application in verses 6-8 to give us two bits of really good news this morning. News that should keep you from exhaustion, keep you from being utterly spiritless, that should keep you from losing heart. First thing I think we can pick up from his application is that persistent prayer has the ear of Almighty God. That's good news. As you persistently pray, God hears you. And you see examples of this in the Scriptures, and and one in particular that stands out to me is in Genesis 18. The Lord is about to rain down fire on Sodom for their sexual sin. And if you read the passage, Abraham prays to God and he says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not, and, spare it, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Hey, if there's 50 people in the city that have never sinned or are not guilty of, of any sexual sin, then Abraham's saying it would not be just for you to wipe the city out. And Abraham's not wrong. But what Abraham is wrong about is that there are not 50 just people in the city. But he's pleading his case to the righteous judge here. He's pleading his case to God. He's persistent. Because if you keep reading, the Lord says, if there are 50, I will spare the whole city. Then Abraham starts doing the math, and he's like, I don't know if there's 50. What about 45? The Lord says, if there's 45, I'll spare them. And then Abraham keeps going down. He said, well, what about 40? And what about 30? And what about 20? And what about 10? God's wrath still rains down on Sodom. Lot's family is delivered, other than his wife, who we saw 
last week looked back, right? Remember Lot's wife, Luke 17, 32. Easy Bible verse to remember. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back. But the point here is that Abraham prays in faith consistently and God is hearing him. How about the prayers of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's got this thorn in the flesh? He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, it's interesting here that the two examples I'm giving you, Abraham nor Paul really get the answer they're looking for. But God hears them. God doesn't remove the thorn, but he promises that his sufficient grace will be enough for Paul, that, that Paul will show, uh, that Paul will have the perfect power of God shown in his life through his suffering. And so again, Paul is persistent. Three times he prays, God answers. When we come to God and we pray, we are not pestering God. Don't don't compare God to the unjust judge in the text in that way. Don't think that, well, if I pester God, then I'll get what I want. That's That's not the point here. The point is, if a corrupt man would give in to what the widow is asking for for the wrong reasons, then surely our sinless, holy God will hear his people for the right reasons. God wants to hear from you. He wants you to persistently pray to him. He is persistent in his desire for you to persistently pray to him. We need to be like David in Psalm 55 who prays morning, noon, and night. He says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Again, he doesn't say, I come to you, Lord, I praise you, I exalt you, I extol you. He says, I utter my complaint and moan, but God still hears him. As he comes and he prays. We need to be like Daniel. Even though he was in exile in a foreign land, he was persistent in talking to God. Daniel 6.10 says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. It had just become illegal to do this. And Daniel goes, well, I'm just going to go do what I always do. It wasn't new for Daniel. It wasn't like, oh, well, now it's illegal to pray. Well, now I've got to pray. Didn't want to pray before, but now they told me I can't, so now I want to. No, he, he just says, I'm going to keep doing what I do. It's, it's what he had done previously. He was persistent in his prayer. The early church father, Hippolytus, said, If you are home, pray at the third hour and bless God. But if you are somewhere else then, pray to God in your heart. Pray likewise at the sixth hour. Let a great prayer and a great blessing be offered also at the ninth hour. Pray as well before your body rests on its bed. But toward midnight, rise up, wash your hands and pray. And at the cock crow, rise up and pray once more. Man, when you go to bed and then you set the alarm to get up in the middle of the night, wash your hands and then pray and then go back to bed and then get up at sunrise and pray again, you're serious about talking to the Lord. That's persistence. 
Adoniram Judson said something similar. He was the first Protestant missionary from North America to Burma. And he was there six years before a single person repented. Six years before he had a single convert. Do you think that Adoniram Judson was praying during those six years? Here's what he said. Endeavor seven times a day to withdraw from business and company to lift up thy soul to God. Begin the day by rising after midnight and devoting some time amid the silence. These guys are crazy, right? They're all getting up at midnight to pray. Maybe there's something to it. Devoting some time amid the silence and darkness of the night to this sacred work. Let the hour of opening dawn find thee at the same work. Let the hours of nine, twelve, three, six, and nine at night witness the same. Be resolute in thy cause. Make all practical sacrifices to maintain it. Consider that thy time is short and that business and company must not be allowed to rob thee of thy God. The government in Burma did a survey after Judson's death and they found that there were 21,000 Christians there. Most of them were converted during his life because of the great multiplication that took place under his ministry. I would say that God listened to Adoniram Judson. Second bit of good news here is that God gives speedy justice to his praying children. He hears his elect. See that in verse 7? And will not God give justice to his elect? That word means picked out. God hears those he has chosen for salvation. He gives swift justice to them. The unjust judge dragged his feet until he was so annoyed that he acted out of selfishness and gave justice to the widow. God will not be this way. He will not withhold protection from his children. Again, he might not always give you the answer you want when you pray, but understand that if he gives you a different answer than you wanted, his answer is more protective than yours ever would have been. Even in death, the resurrection of his son is there ensuring there is no ultimate sting for your soul. This should motivate us to not grow weary in doing good, to not grow weary, to not lose heart. If you pray persistently, God hears and God protects. It doesn't mean you won't suffer, but it does mean that you will not suffer without an advocate if you are in Christ Jesus. Again, we'll look at one of David's prayers here. He knew this. Psalm 86. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, little g, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. David pleads for grace, but he pleads for grace with confidence. He doesn't worry that, man, one of these days I'm going to be praying and the Lord's going to turn and say, would you just get out of here already? I'm tired of hearing from you. That God, God's never going to say that to David, and David knows that. He knows when he's in trouble, he can call on the Lord, the Lord is going to answer. And that's what separates Jehovah from the counterfeit competitors. That all the other idols that we give our worship to, They are dumb. They are mute. They cannot hear. They cannot respond. They cannot do anything. False gods don't answer. False gods don't move. False gods aren't real. But God hears. He is real. He is just. And He acts on behalf of His people. And David prays persistently because he believes these things in the core of his soul. 
And then Jesus closes the parable with a question. And the question is meant to just hang there. It's like Jesus leaves us with this spiritual CT scan here. And he he gives it to us and he says, just take this question and examine yourself. That's what he's saying to us this morning. Take this question and examine yourself. And the question is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that takes us to our final point this morning. The faith Christ longs to find is evidenced by persistent prayer. The faith he longs to find in verse 8 is evidenced by persistent prayer. Do you think Jesus is really wondering? Do you think he's going, I just don't know how many will believe when I return. I don't know what the state of things are going to be. Now, he, he is sovereign and he is in control. The Son of Man knows. And so he asks the question for us that we would examine ourselves. He wants us to stop and think. When Jesus returns, is he going to find the faith of Abraham? Is he going to find the faith of Daniel? Is he going to find the faith of David, of Hippolytus, of of Adoniram Judson? Will he find his people persistently praying for his return, persistently praying for justice, persistently praying for the protection of the Lord? Or is he going to find his people ignoring him? Is he going to find his people going about their lives as if he doesn't exist, living like practical atheists. Remember what he said in chapter 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. If you spend your days eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building, meaning you're just going about your life, you never stop to acknowledge the Lord in your ways, you never stop to to think about the Lord to ponder the, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and you never stop to pray to the Lord. You never talk to Him. There's no persistence in your prayer life. There are disastrous results. So listen, at the very least, you are putting yourself in a position to lose heart. We can look at this text this morning and say, if the, you are not praying persistently, at the very least, You're putting yourself in a position to lose heart, to run out of gas, to be exhausted, to be utterly without spirit. But worse than that, your lack of persistent prayer could be a sign you don't have saving faith in the Lord to begin with. Is that not the implied warning in Jesus' question? What does your prayer life say about your faith in God and His Son? Does it say, he's my only hope, therefore I must plead my cause before him because I know he will listen? Or does a prayerlessness in your life say, I don't really need his help? My old seminary professor, Dave Early, used to say, if you want to be a spiritual giant, you better pray with the giants. We've seen how the giants pray this morning. They pray early, they pray often, they pray consistently, they pray persistently. 
Their prayers are directed at the Father. They're concerned for His name, for His kingdom, for His will. They're relying on Him for daily bread, for forgiveness, for holiness. And we better join in. We better pray with the giants or we might be found faithless when He comes back. Out of gas, no heart, or even worse, no advocate. We must pray persistently. It's appropriate for us to do that now. Let's go to the Lord. Father, what a, 